welcome to a very special episode of Super Critical, the podcast where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear weapons interact. As always, you can find our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and YouTube. Now, we normally spend about one to two hours overanalyzing a movie or a TV show that have plot lines dealing with nuclear weapons. But today, I am pleased to announce the start of a new series within the podcast. You know, sometimes there's a, a film that has just a scene or two that deal with nuclear topics. Maybe it might be a quick plot device or some sort of an attempt at using nuclear imagery to spruce up the plot. While these circumstances may not warrant a full-size episode, we still think they deserve to be overanalyzed in what I'm going to call our mini-nuke episodes. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy for a living, but also enjoys uh, having a movie conversation about it, uh, and sometimes a little bit too much for my guests. My usual co-host today, Joel, is not able to join us, but we brought back our Star Trek subject matter expert, Gabe, who you might remember from our episode 5 and episode 6, where we covered the nuclear plot lines of two Star Trek episodes from the original series. Gabe, thanks again for joining us. Thanks. Hey, how's it going, Tim? Well, I'm really happy that Gabe was able to come today because we are going to discuss the latest movie in the Star Trek reboot series, Star Trek Beyond, a sci-fi adventure movie released on July 22nd, 2016. Gabe and I actually saw this uh, movie in the theaters on opening weekend in these very nice, comfy leather chairs that recline all the way, so it really felt like we got the, 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 the perfect movie experience um, for this. Uh, this movie was directed by Justin Lin, who you may know from three of the many Fast and the Furious movies. And this one was actually written by Simon Pegg, who played Scotty in the movie. You may know him from like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. And those are some of my favorite movies. So I've always enjoyed seeing him in the Star Trek. And I guess he's a pretty big Star Trek nerd. Gabe, you can, uh, what was the significance of this movie in terms of the timeline and the history of Star Trek? Um, yeah, I mean, th this was uh, this was pretty big because Star Trek's currently going through its 50th anniversary. Um, it's kind of a lot of events and fanfare. They just announced a new uh, a new TV series, uh, Star Trek Discovery, uh, here in Washington. There's some events at the Smithsonian in September for the day the day uh, 50th uh, anniversary of the day the first ep uh, episode was aired. That so. is classy. Yeah, so um, I might go in costume. We'll see. Um, but no, this so this movie. The release was, uh, you know, strategically timed for this summer to correspond with the 50th anniversary of the show. Okay, great. Uh, well, the cast seems like it's the same for the last couple of ones. We can run through that really quickly because uh, the purpose of these uh, mini nuke episodes isn't really to get into a huge uh, bit of the entire plot because not a lot of it has to do with nuclear weapons. But we'll still, for the purpose, to make sure everyone's on the same page. Well, we can have we have Chris Pine as Captain James T. Kirk who is the commanding officer of the USS Enterprise, the ship that gets uh, pretty well destroyed in this one. Uh, it seems like it happens like every other movie, yeah. the Enterprise gets destroyed. But Zachary Quinto uh, as the commander Spock, first officer and science officer on the Enterprise and a, and a close friend of Captain Kirk. We have Carl Urban as Lieutenant Commander uh, Leonard McCoy, who is uh, also known as Bo Bones, right? Yeah, Bones. Bones on the show. He's one of my, I think he was one of my favorite people in this new movie. Uh, you have Zoe Saldana as Lieutenant Uhura, the communications officer, uh, someone who's also in the movie that's important for the plot, is dating or somewhat dating. They're a little, it's complicated right now uh, with Spock. And then you have Simon Pegg, as we mentioned earlier. He plays uh, the Lieutenant Commander uh, Montgomery Scott, or Scotty, the second officer and chief engineer. And then you have Ildris Alba here as the villain, known in the movie as Crawl. And we learn a little bit more about him later, but we'll get to that. All right, so someone who's a pretty big Star Trek fan and yourself, Gabe, what did you think about this movie? What was the 
how was it received amongst the community and the, the, the writer audience at large? Yeah, I, I think it was a success. Um, 83% on, on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it, it wasn't crazy in the box office. Uh, on a $185 million budget, made uh, $216 million worldwide. So it's, it's pretty good. Um, it was the least amount of money for an opening of a rebooted Star Trek that's post the uh, the J.J. Abrams reboot. But it's, it was the fourth behind the franchise adjusted uh, for inflation. Uh, so fourth all time. And they're planning to make a, a fourth movie, so I think you know. I think it's uh, it was pretty well. I I enjoyed it. Um, I, I think there are a lot of you know the hardcore Star Trek uh, fans kind of pick parts of it apart. But in terms of a movie that could uh, appeal to Star Trek fans like myself, but also to a wider audience, I think they did a great job. Okay, that's good to hear. I, I know I enjoyed it too, but we'll get to our individual opinions about the movie uh, in greater detail right at the end. But let's run through the plot real quick. So again, make sure everyone's on the same page uh, before we start to overanalyze uh, really just one part of this movie. So really it is a mini nuke in every sense of the word. All right, so before we get into the discussion here for the movie plot, just a reminder that we constantly spoil things. So even though this movie came out just recently in the summer, uh, we hope that you have seen the movie and are, are prepared uh, to be able to go into the full plot discussion. You have been warned. So what happens in this film? All right, so um, so we're, we're in the the actual, uh, this famous five-year mission of the Enterprise that's kind of alluded in the original series. So, so, so op- the original series was five years. What was Next Generation? Uh, so Next Generation, they're, they're vague about it. They say it's continuing mission. There's no time set. I think for original series, they planned to have it go five years long. The, the series only ran for three years, um, but the, they make references to a five-year mission. Okay. Um, but in this one there, it opens with this scene uh, that Kirk's on a mission, a diplomatic mission to return some artifact to an alien culture um the whole thing goes horribly awry he ends up you know uh, blunderous missteps um and uh and ends up coming back to the ship and this artifact which kind of becomes important later in the movie it gets stored in the ship by spock um the movie then kind of shifts to the Enterprise is going to dock at this giant space station, Yorktown, um, to get shore leave for the crew, get some supplies. This, this was a really cool part of the movie because it was just this gigantic space station. All the different other ships can fly into it. It's got a defense system where it shoots lasers back out into space. And inside of it, it's just it's like an Earth, but upside down, depending on where they can use gravity to hold people so that everything's tightly fit. It's like a bunch of rings. I've seen pictures of um, like plans for what they thought space stations were going to look like in the 60s and the 50s, and it looks just like that. Yeah, I, yeah. I love the special effects in this movie. And- it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty good stuff. Um, but even though the place is awesome, Kirk's kind of down. He's, you know, he, in his log entry, he talks about how he's kind of getting worn out by being out in space and kind of getting dulled by the days. Uh, out there, um, he's actually talking about wanting to leave his command of the Enterprise and trying to become an admiral, where he'd have a desk job essentially. Um, meanwhile, you know, other members of the crew are having stuff happen uh, in their personal lives. Uh, Spock has decided that he wants to leave Starfleet uh, after the death of the Spock from the Prime Star Trek universe, who is played by Leonard Nimoy, who who passed away, obviously, uh, last year. Um, and he also um, gets... There's a, a, a breakup between him and Uhura. Um, there's a scene where uh, he Uhura wants to return a necklace that he gave to her, and he says, well, it's not appropriate. You should keep it. It's in the Vulcan custom. We don't give gifts back. So... I think you should have this back. 
after all, it belonged to your mother. It is not in the Vulcan custom to receive again that which was given as a gift. So kind of there's this malaise hanging over things, but quickly we get into the action. Um, there's a distress call sent to the Yorktown of some, uh, some woman who says that her crew is stranded in Nebula and need help. Captain Kirk and the Enterprise respond to the call. They go to this planet and soon after arriving are completely ambushed by this fleet of uh, tiny, very uh, powerful ships that just tear the ship apart, basically. They fly like a, like a, a drone of uh, a big group of bees. It seems like almost. Like yeah. They, they yeah. fly together, they can turn quickly, and they just run right through the ships. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Enterprise has no chance. And, and, and we get introduced to their leader, uh, this this character, Kral, who's alien-looking, but seems to know a lot about Starfleet and about Kirk and the Enterprise. And mm-hmm. it's almost like he, he has some knowledge that we don't know about. Um, Enterprise gets uh, destroyed, um, except for the saucer section, which they're able to crash land on the planet. Um, and that's and, the, the the big round part on the top of the ship. Okay, yeah. Let me make sure. I, I didn't know that term until they kept. They had to say it a few times. Oh yeah. Oh yep. The flying exactly, saucer. Like exactly. A, like a UFO. Got it. Um. So so the crew gets on the ground of this planet. Um. There's different parts of the crew in different places. Kirk and Chekhov are in one area together, and then McCoy and Spock are in one area, and and uh, Uhura's by herself in one area. So. There's basically the movie focuses on different, you know, these different characters and their plan to kind of uh, get the uh, get the crew together and figure out how they're going to escape. Because some of them are kidnapped. Yeah, some a large portion of the crew are kidnapped by Kral and his forces, and in the meantime, Kral is looking for this artifact from the beginning of the movie, and it turns out that this artifact is the final piece of a very powerful bioweapon. And Kral ends up finally getting his hands on this and um, is able to, you know, complete this bioweapon. But in the meantime, um, Kirk and uh, and Chekhov and uh, Scotty they they encounter this uh, woman uh, named Jayla who's been living on the surface. Her family was attacked by Kral, and she's been living in this old Starfleet starship that crashed on the planet a long time ago. It's called the USS Franklin, and uh, she kind of helps them, and they repair the Franklin, and they uh, put this plan together where they they finally track down where the crew is and figure out how they're going to transport them out using the Franklin. And actually, uh, to get to Uhura, the necklace comes back. The Mm. necklace apparently has uh, some radioactive material in it, and they're able to track... Um, her position by using the signature from the radioactive material. Yeah. So. so remember that for later. Yeah, exactly. So what happens is uh, Kirk is finally able to uh, get the crew back together on this on the USS Franklin, but not before Kral ends up uh, on his way with this bioweapon to the Yorktown with his intention to launch it in the Yorktown's um, ventilation system. Kirk and the crew uh, flying the, the USS Franklin, they launch the, in hot pursuit, there's this great scene where they destroy most of Kral's fleet by broadcasting uh, sabotage by the Beastie Boys <laughs> on a VHF radio frequency that kind of causes mass confusion. Yeah, they call it classical music. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, uh, but the only one who's able to get through is Kral, and Kral gets into the Yorktown. And at this point, we find out who Kral really is. He used to be a, a member of Starfleet. He was a soldier in the Starfleet Special Forces but then became a captain. He's the one who crash landed on the planet with this, uh, with his ship, the USS Franklin, and began using some alien technology to essentially suck the life force out of other creatures. And it gave him this strange appearance and kind of caused him to go mad. And do- doesn't he match the appearance of whatever person that he takes over? It's almost like the aliens, xenomorphs from 
the Alien series, Ridley Scott movies and the James Cameron movies. Like, if they attack a human and implant them, then the alien looks a little more human-shaped. But if they do that to a predator, as they do in the Alien vs. Predator movies, it looks more like a predator. They do it to a dog. It has four legs. So it seems a little bit like that. He takes on the physical appearance of whatever species he... Uh, I would love to see what happens if he were to merge with a tribble. Those little furry <laughs> cat-like creatures. Yeah, exactly. I would say, if this was real, I'd, I'd uh, like attack uh, George Clooney or something. Mm. Yeah, you could like pick your pick your persona. Um, well, Idris Elba is already pretty a handsome. That's man by true. Himself. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, so no, that's exactly it. And and by the end of the movie, because uh, Kral has been kind of using the Enterprise crew members for this. He um, he starts to look human again. In the end, there's this big battle. Uh, Kirk is finally able to defeat him, and uh, they save the Yorktown. And at the end, this this whole adventure gives new energy to Kirk, who turns down the admiral, the desk job, decides he wants to stay with the Enterprise. They they rebuild. They build a new Enterprise to replace the destroyed one. Spock decides that he's going to stay in Starfleet, um, and it's kind of a happily ever after for, for all the members of the crew. During the film, when they talked about the radioactive necklace, my ears perked up, and I thought, oh, well, this is great, because now I have another podcast that we can do. The only nuclear point that we have to discuss today is what's the deal with that radioactive jewelry that Spock gives Aurora that not only looks stylish, but also ends up saving the day. When Kirk asks for a plan to locate the captured crew of the USS Enterprise, Spock suggests that they hone in on the unique radioactive signal of the necklace that Spock had given his hostage girlfriend, Aurora, earlier in the film, as Gabe mentioned. So the necklace is an amulet made of, and I, I don't speak Vulcan, I think Gabe is conversational in Vulcan, um, but uh, Volkaya? Volkaya? Volkaya, Volkaya. Volkaya? I don't know. Volkaya, Volkaya. You say Volkaya, I say Volkaya. <laughs> um, but it's a material that's found only on Vulcan before it was destroyed in this rebooted uh, movie timeline. Yeah, I guess this amulet belonged to his Spock's mother, Amanda, who was played by Winona Ryder, who I, she's been great this summer in uh, Stranger Things on Netflix. Um, but so before she passed on, I guess she gave him this necklace. And it's a good thing, too, because not only does it save the day, but it prompts this really funny exchange between uh, Spock and McCoy. So well, let's do this. Let's do this. I'll be uh, McCoy and you'll be Spock. All right, let's do it. McCoy, after Spock tells him about this process, he says... You gave your girlfriend a radioactive jewelry? The emission is harmless. However, its unique signature makes it very easy to identify. You gave your girlfriend a tracking device. That was not my intention. That was that got a lot of laughs in the theater. Even, even uh, the people that we watched it with, we watched it with our respective wives, and I think they enjoyed that scene too, even though they weren't really big Star Trek people. I don't know if they would enjoy hearing what we just did, but anyway, <laughs> I thought it was good. Um, so yeah, so I was already enjoying the film, but I did a double take when my ears heard this reference to radioactive jewelry because it reminded me of another similar fashion trend in the United States in the 40s uh, that had a brief half-life. Uh-huh. Didn't last too long. Uh, so let's overanalyze this little bit of plot from the beginning. Simon Pegg, the writer and actor who plays Scotty, uh, writer of this movie, had this to say about the necklace and where they came up with the idea and the backstory for it. So he said, We had this idea of this love token of Aurora's coming back later in the film to help them find out where she was located. So we had this idea of radioactive mineral. We saw the humor that Spock was basically keeping track of her. But we didn't have a name for it, so we reached out to the guys who created Memory Alpha, which is the Star Trek Wikipedia. Um, And I know, Gabe, I use the Memory Alpha quite a bit for these podcasts because while I, I know a little bit about Star Trek from talking to you and from some stuff that I watched earlier, the, the into the details of where 
say nuclear weapons are referenced in Star Trek and the history behind it. I don't know that stuff. So I have you, do you use memory alpha? Oh, all it? the time. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It's uh, like the there's a Wikipedia, which is the Star Wars version of this, and there's wikis for everything. But uh, Star, yeah, memory alpha has been pretty helpful, as you can imagine. That when the guys from Memory Alpha received an email from Simon Pegg, they, they flipped out. Here's what Dan Carlson and Harry Dodema, who created Memory Alpha, said uh, once they were asked by Simon Pegg to help with naming the amulet. Naturally, Harry and I exploded with excitement and jumped at the chance to contribute to our favorite show. For the next few hours, we furiously emailed back and forth, pitching ideas. Harry thought of Trinitite a real-world radioactive mineral created during the Trinity atomic bomb test that was briefly used as jewelry before the consequences of radioactivity were fully understood. Vulcans were known to have detonated atomic weapons during the time of awakening, so a similar mineral would have easily have been created from desert sands of their planet. It would be very slightly radioactive and has become less so over the 1,500 years since that war, giving off an energy signature that would be detected by a scanner. And as a physical relic of Vulcan's illogical wars, it would hold deep meaning for them, justifying its use as a memento in jewelry and similar artifacts. But they still needed to figure out how what to name it. So I'll let Gabe uh, read this because it's got a lot of Vulcan in it. So, so, they, so this is as they wrote. So what to call it? We dove into a bunch of references, starting with Memory Alpha, of course. I found a few promising words. Vocal, which means remember from uh, as per the forge and enterprise episode and Haya, which means mountains from the novel spock's world this felt like a perfect starting point for a name since the stone would be a physical reminder of the memory of vulcan's past we tried a few different variations but the translation was always meant to roughly be remembrance stone or memory stone i suggested vocal Haya as a tip of the hat to the other hyphenated vulcan words like kun ut kal if fi and we eventually shortened it to vokaya we did all our research, brainstorming, and discussion in about five hours, and then set off a reply to Mr. Pegg with our ideas. Can you imagine getting uh, an email from Simon Pegg asking for your help and input on the next Star Trek movie? That must have been quite the day for them. On Memory Alpha, because the guys who, who run Memory Alpha came up with the name, how does it describe it so we make sure we got the exact scientific detail? Sure. So, so Vokaya was a turquoise-colored mineral unique to Vulcan, which emitted a harmless but distinctive radiation. I guess stress the harmless part of that. <laughs> In the alternate reality, Spock gifted a Vulcan amulet made of Vokaya, once owned by Amanda Grayson, to Naota Uhura. Its radiation proved useful in locating Uhura when she was held captive by Kral on the planet Ultimid in 2263. That's a reference to the plot of the movie. Upon learning of the amulet, Leonard McCoy op opined that Scott had given his girlfriend a tracking device, much to the Vulcan chagrin. Much to the Vulcan's chagrin. Um, so I was amazed to learn not only how cool it must have been for the Star Trek wikipedia guys to have this kind of input in their franchise but also that trinitite was an actual inspiration for the vulcan amulet and, the, and this plot device so let's go into a little more detail about this because i think this is a bit of nuclear history that a lot of people um, may not know about the first nuclear weapon test codenamed trinity by j robert oppenheimer uh, one of the chief scientists on the manhattan project to build the first nuclear bomb this test occurred at 5 30 a.m on july 16 1945 almost uh on the day when this movie was released, you know, decades prior, uh, right in that late, late July. So this was done at a, a test site at the U.S. Air Force Base uh, at Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is about 120 miles south of Albuquerque. The plutonium implosion test device was nicknamed by the Los Alamos staff as the Gadget during the Manhattan Project. It was placed atop a 100-foot tower 
and then detonated. And the detonation fireball reached a temperature of over 10 million degrees from a blast, the equivalent of right about 20,000 tons of TNT. This was the largest man-made explosion, as you can imagine, ever in terms of the recorded history. Maybe the, the Stone Age, there's a better one that we don't have any recorded history for, but I doubt it. And just out of curiosity, 20 kilotons, how does that compare to modern nuclear weapons? Much smaller. The weapons we have nowadays, the ones on on ICBM missiles, are rough. In the U.S., it's around 350 or to 400 uh, kilotons, so very, very small. But okay. we do we do have weapons that are in that smaller range, these low-yield nuclear weapons. Um, but not the that's not the one that makes up most of our fleet. But it did for a while. Those were the smaller, simple implosion devices. So this is before thermonuclear bombs, which combine fusion and fission to produce these larger megaton yields for some countries like China. Uh, makes up a lot of their arsenal. The sand that was part of the desert uh, was made mostly of silica and a few other types of minerals. And the Trinity test caused this sand to form a light green colored glass called Trinitite. And while it's still slightly radioactive today, it's not as bad as is, you know, being right there when this thing happened. Uh, Trinitite was first called Alamogordo glass or more commonly um, Adamsite glass. And after the test, most people thought this glass was made because of the intense heat of the fireball, because you can see similar things happening either in the desert or in the beach when a lightning bolt hits the ground. That has been shown to make a version of glass. But if this was the case, if it was just from the heat, it would be fine to have jewelry because you can just kind of scrape the top level right. off and you have this cool level of glass in the bottom of it. It's totally okay. Uh, so that's why people maybe thought that it was okay to, to wear this stuff as jewelry. However, two scientists at, at Los Alamos, the Robert Hermes and uh, William Strickfaden, in 2005, published an article with their theory on how the glass was made. They looked very closely at the trinitite with microscopes and noticed uh, spheres within the glass. And they suggested that instead of the glass simply being heated below the fireball, the sand actually was lifted up into the air inside the fireball, inside the mushroom cloud, which caused the sand to melt and form liquid droplets, much like water in a regular rain cloud. When the droplets became too heavy after combining with each other, they fell to the ground, much like rain, and in the heat of the fireball, will smooth. And when they landed, became a, a had a glassy texture, much like glass. That, this sounds almost worse than being stuck in an explosion, being rained upon by hot molten silica. Yeah. Uh, that sounds really awful. It's, it's a pretty frightening uh, to imagine it being right below that. Um, so after the, the test and a few other U.S. tests in the late 40s and the early 1950s, the glass was sold to collectors and jewelry makers as, an, as a novelty item because this is something that had never been created before. It was very unique. It had a, a, a greenish hue to it. So people thought, you know, radioactive is pretty cool. This is definitely something I want to wear as a, as a fashion statement. And because at the time people thought the glass was just formed from the heat and not being caught because of the radioactive cloud, it was considered completely safe. And I'll include some links to advertisements selling Trinitite jewelry, uh, but I'll, I'm also going to show Gabe uh, one or two of these right now. This picture I'm showing him right now is from a movie star at the time who was wearing uh, Trinitite as a, as a hairpiece. I guess that's the hairpiece here, it's a greenish and it's supposed to be made to look like an atom. Ironically enough, shortly thereafter, lost all her hair. Uh, 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 I'll put, put a couple more on the internet, but here is, or in terms of the show notes, here's what it, the glass looks like, Gabe. It's, it looks a little bit like kryptonite. I guess you can imagine wow. Lex Luthor's uh, lady friends wearing kryptonite to keep Superman away. But here's some more pictures of some of the glass that was there. Uh, and then here's some pictures of what the necklace looked like. 
that they did in the as you can imagine so most of the time this jewelry the, in this one of these uh, advertisements that I showed Gabe in the Albuquerque Journal in September 1945 showed palladium jewelry inset with adamsite or trinitite. So they would combine it with other elements. So it wouldn't just be a rock hanging from your necklace. They would get some professional jewelers to do some work with this. But much like fashion trends today the, did not last. Exposure of trinitite to the skin over a long period of time can cause radiation burns, even when Jesus. the dose is relatively mild. Oh my god! So it wouldn't cause skin cancer or anything like that, but it certainly was an unpleasant look. Uh, it was like tan lines you probably couldn't get away and have to explain away. It's the uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, yeah, <laughs> get the jewelry and keep the burn. Left quite an impression on people. Um, in nineteen <laughs> in 1953, the Atomic Energy Commission buried the remaining glass at the Trinity site, and it is now illegal to take Trinitite from the area. But you can still occasionally find it on eBay, on, on Amazon, and a couple other auction uh, sites as well. All right, let's be honest, Tim. When you were searching for wedding rings, did you look for any Trinitite rings? I wish. I, my ring right now is it's pretty cool. It's it's like a style of Damascus steel. Okay. Um, but if I would have known how easy it was to get it on Amazon, I might have... Try to see if I could at least maybe maybe I would have tested on on the fiance first maybe sneak it in on the engagement ring. There you go. But unfortunately, uh, if you want to try to buy it yourself, you have to be careful because there's a lot of fake products that are out there. People wanting to take advantage of the popularity of it, it to make some sort of a stone look green, and they put in a little bit of radioactivity into it so that it will click on a Geiger counter. And the way to guess to tell that trinitite is real. There are certain neutron activation products that aren't naturally found in uh, minerals and ore that where it could be naturally radioactive. Because a lot of material is naturally radioactive. You see that at construction sites. Um, bananas are radioactive if you put enough of them together. You need these certain uh, detectors to be able to use detect for gamma radiation in a very particular type of signal uh, to be able to tell that it's real or not. So be careful if you're getting scammed on the internet. Look for that certificate of authenticity. So, so one thing I'm wondering is when they first were selling this stuff, did they not put like a Geiger counter next to it? Like, how did they not realize that this stuff could be dangerous and cause harm, you know? Well, so radi- radiation is something that I think scares a lot of people, but it's, it's something that's not like there's th- you aren't in your life not being exposed to radiation and okay. all of a sudden are exposed to radiation. People were always constantly exposed to radiation. So there's this thing called background radiation. So if you take a, a Geiger counter and you put it up into the air and you touch, you know, the table that we're looking at now, there is some radioactivity to that because we're being hit by cosmic radiation. There's a lot of building materials uh, that has radiation to it. It's not the level that causes you any sort of harm. Uh, but that's why we look at things like lifetime radiation doses. We look at a daily radiation doses. So there's different ways to calculate uh, how much exposure you're allowed to have. So they probably took the glass did a few tests on it and said, this is pretty mild compared to other things that are out in the desert that we just exploded a nuclear bomb over. And they thought it was fine. But it's one of those things that it's everything is everything is chemicals, uh, but it's all about how much you take and how what's, what's the dosage and the levels. I think this jewelry was one of those. They just didn't get that, cal- that balance right. It was too much for people's skin to be able to handle. And it didn't last very long. It wasn't until, you know, like 1953 when they stopped letting people take this thing as, as a souvenir when they would leave. So you can see, you can still visit the Trinity test site about twice or three times a year. They open it up to the public, but they definitely make sure you don't take anything with you. And it wasn't just unique to the Trinity test site either. Any Anytime we did an above ground nuclear test, depending on the exact parameters of it, this glass was, was going to be created because of the, the same criteria. 
is there. And there's even an equivalent from the Soviet Union test. Uh, so I'm going to terribly mispronounce this. Um, but Kotarinchink? Uh, but it's named after one of the, the country's top uh, nuclear weapon uh, scientists. I'm saving some of these details that I have for a later episode. Um, but there's there was definitely a trend at the time of using radiation for everything. You would have... You would put radiation into your food, and you would drink droplets of it. Radioactive toothpaste. Radioactive toothpaste. You would go to hot springs that had natural radiation to higher doses, and it was considered to boost your uh, your healing abilities. And you know, then I'm sure comic books didn't help with that when everybody would get radiation induced power, like Spider Man and all of that. <laughs> it's it also serves a functional purpose too. So a scientific report published uh, by Geology Today in 2010 talked about not only how the glass was formed but also that it, similar glass were formed during all ground-level nuclear detonations and contained forensic information that can be used to identify the atomic device. So if you were to give scientists some glass from a test site, they can, if they have the information about what the test was like, they can match that to the individual test and its location. It's another way you can attribute uh, nuclear use oh, to, no. to a certain country that's, or to where it happened. That's pretty cool. I found this one piece of information while I was doing some research on the amulet, and it's according to an article on theadventurine.com, which is a jewelry and wedding blog. The actual amulet was created by the props department. So Andy Siegel, who was the prop master for the film, said, I can make a space gun almost without thinking about it, but if you want to make a piece of jewelry, you better make sure you pay attention because people are going to actually look at a piece of jewelry as opposed to a space gun. So he contacted John Eaves, who was a Star Trek veteran. Uh, he's an illustrator who had worked on uh, every Star Trek movie since The Final Frontier in 1989. He designed the necklace itself, could have what it would look like, and he drew from Vulcan history and what the imagery they'd done before. And I showed gave a picture of this. Here I'm showing a picture of him right now, kind of what this looks like. But you can get a sense of what they wanted to go for. They always wanted this, this stone itself to be a light blue. Uh, but they couldn't get real opal because it's really expensive. So they found someone who could make a synthetic version of it, a replacement, because they needed three of them. They needed one for the main actress, one for the stunt double, and then a replacement in case one of those broke or was taken off uh, on the set. And they actually wasn't radioactive, so they, so they couldn't track it down. So they found this a synthetic version of it and were able to make it. So I think that's just a little bit of a fun history of how props uh, are made, not only kind of how you name these things, but where you... Uh, how do you get the idea of what they will look like? Opal actually is a good choice for this particular piece of jewelry. So uh, fair disclosure, I was a geology minor, so I started thinking about this uh, as we were talking, but the um, opal is a, a polymorph of quartz. Quartz is, is silicon and oxygen, um, which is the stuff that was, you know, in the sand in the mm -hmm. desert that got uh, got turned into the, the you know, nuclear glass. So uh, quartz is, is uh, or uh, sorry, uh, opal is, is the same style of, of mineral that was uh, that was basically used to create the uh, the real stuff on Earth. So, wow. yeah. I don't know if they knew that when they made this, probably just because it looked cool, but if they did, that is some crazy in-depth detail um, that I can't really get too super critical about. I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's great that they, I mean, for them to go that deep into it, I, I'd i like to think that that was not an accident that they picked uh, Opal, so uh, keeping with the uh, with the theme and the writing very very closely. So props to the props department. Yeah, um, so that that's the thing I, I wanted to kind of go into. I thought it was really interesting, not only because it was a similar idea, but that there was real inspiration from Trinitite. Uh, and again, I'll show some pictures on our on our show notes about this. But let's do a quick wrap-up of this movie. Let's do what we were calling our, our parking lot movie discussion. After the movie's over, we hang out in the parking lot and, and, and talk about the film. Gabe, you have some thoughts about some of the why this film in particular 
was a good uh, part of this rebooted series. Yeah, well, I mean, two things. First, the reason that we're talking about this is because the writers actually cared to, you know, delve into this kind of minutia. And I think that shows their respect for, you know, the the canon and the series. And I think a lot of people were worried that when they heard that Jeremy Lin was directing, this would just be a Fast and Furious set in space. But mm-hmm. I think... Oh, the, that's that's a great idea, too. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so, so that's one. I mean, it, you know, the, the fact that they put the attention to the plot. Two, I mean, I, I thought it was heavy on the action. Um, I thought that was fine because I thought it fit nicely into the canon. I really thought that the... The first movie is about uh, Kirk thinking that he's kind of invulnerable and him learning that he's not. The, the second movie, uh, same thing. It's him learning about death and, and his mortality. And I really thought this third movie was about immortality and, and hmm. you know, Kirk kind of developing Kirk's persona of a uh, this kind of timeless character. And, you know, he's kind of getting worn out. And uh, it's literally a character who has become immortal uh, through, you know, crawl through doing these treatments. It kind of teaches him the importance of perseverance in, in life. And, and maybe maybe it's boring out mm-hmm. there in space, but as long as you stick to your values, as long as you, uh, you, you, you try to do what's right, um, can, you can do that uh, as long as you can. So I, I thought that that was a, a very nice, uh, it fit nicely into the whole, uh, into the whole series. Interesting, because I know one of the exchanges that McCoy has with Spock was about whether or not Vulcans fear death. And fearing death is illogical in their culture. And then McCoy comes back and says, no, fear of death is what keeps us alive. And it's interesting because I one of the only complaints I had about this film was I didn't really understand upon first first viewing what changed Spock and Kirk's minds about their 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 crises of identity. But what they were going to do, whether it be Spock, is he going to quit so that he can become an ambassador and take over that role? Which, again, that's a crazy idea, too, watching an alternate timeline version of yourself die that's got to prompt some thoughts about what it actually means for you to be a a living creature in this world but also with kirk i didn't really understand what rejuvenated his interest in in, and staying in starfleet but i guess what you're saying is he saw someone who had a life extended but it was a meaningless life and if this starfleet experience gives him some sort of meaning in his life then, then that would, would generate him to move forward. And he can understand that yeah, there's going to be some good days and some bad days, but there's some meaning to it. And do I understand that right? Yeah, I think I think that's... I'm, I'm not making this point very eloquently, I think. But yeah, something along that line of, you know, um, Kral, Kral chose this path of immortality through uh, nefarious bad ends and, and lost who he truly was, both, both on the inside and mm-hmm. on the outside. Uh, and I think Kirk realized that this is, you know... Space is his destiny and, and his, you know, that's where his values are and, and it's something worth sticking to. Interesting. Well, uh, as someone who isn't um, fully invested in the Star Trek universe and history and the lore and the canon, I, I definitely enjoyed this film. And, yeah. also, and, uh, and the radioactive jewelry piece to it was fun for me because <laughs> it, it was like scientific problem solving. Which they didn't really do in some of the other films. But yeah, but so so let's let's give this one a rating as we always do. Uh, for this one, out of five, uh, one to five, I want to say one to five red shirt deaths. As everyone knows, uh, you you see a crew member wearing a red shirt, that probably means they're not going to make it in the scene. Got to have some of the ex- expendable people to show what the stakes are. Uh, so one red shirt death is a boring episode with only one insignificant crew member uh, passing on. Well, but five, five is, is top tier entertainment. You know that's a good a good episode. <laughs> Out of one to five red shirt deaths, Gabe, what would you give this film? Uh, I, I'd give it I give it a solid four. I mean, I, I really liked it. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it was a, a solid Star Trek movie and just a solid movie. I would agree. I, I would also say four. Nice. Four, four is with it. Uh, I would say First Contact gets five. Um, Undiscovered Country gets two. 
if that gives you a sense. <laughs> Nemesis, maybe two. Um, yeah, I maybe think Nemesis is a little better than I, I give. I give one. Nemesis was like uh, zero red shirts died. There's like no action whatsoever. They just sat there. But anyway. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening to another episode of Super Critical and our first mini-nuke episode. I've got some ideas for other mini-nuke episodes in the future. Uh, things like that one time Indiana Jones survived a nuclear bomb test from staying inside of a refrigerator. Uh, and also the time they nuke Superman in the latest Batman vs. Superman movie. I think those would be fun little uh, capsules of discussion. So I'll try to find good people to, to bring on to talk about that. Let us know if you have any ideas for these types of episodes, uh, either on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast on Facebook or email the old-fashioned way, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. But Gabe, thanks again for, for coming on and, and, and sharing with us your Star Trek knowledge. Yeah, thank you. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Yeah.